Welcome to the inaugural episode of The Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely, with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm Jeff Bilbro, the editor of the Front Porch Republic website, but going forward, longtime porcher John Murdoch will be our host, and he's already lining up some thoughtful guests. Please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and let us know if you have any suggestions on who we should talk to in the coming months. For this first episode, we're glad to be able to share a conversation between several longtime porchers about the prospects for localism in this post-Trump and possibly soon-to-be-post-COVID moment. Given this transitional time in American politics, it seems worth looking back a bit on FPR's defense of localism and considering what opportunities there might be for a renewed commitment to place. For years now, we have sought to articulate an alternative to the nationalist, globalist, uniformist vision that has so captivated the ruling classes. The Trump presidency is ending in chaos. The Biden agenda is yet to be implemented. What are the prospects now for localism? Does the post-Trump era open up possibilities for a renewal of local affections and attentions? What challenges are likely to arise in the coming months and years? What strategies should localists pursue? Jeff Paulette led this conversation between Patrick Deneen, Bill Kaufman, and Catherine Dalton. We hope you enjoy. now 401 and uh, we like to be nothing if not prompt. Um, so I'm going to, uh, I, I'm Jeff Paulette. I'm on the uh, board of directors of Front Porch Republic, uh, one time editor of the website. And um, yeah, we're, we're venturing into kind of new territory here. Um, uh, it has always been uh, kind of contrary to the ethos of FPR to do anything online. Um, and so to try to do something new online is uh, perhaps a bit more audacious than we ought to be. Um, it has also been our policy not really to talk much about presidential politics. Uh, I, I went through the website today to see how many essays there had been. Um, over the uh, nearly 12 years of our history on uh, the presidency. And the, it, it's surprisingly few. And I think the only time that we ever uh, talked about the presidential election was back in 2012, uh, where we had uh, an essay on the election uh, to which uh, the respondents, it was a round table, to which the respondents largely responded by saying that they were uh, weighing in by tapping out, um, which is, is probably tells us something about uh, uh, where we're from, uh, where we're coming from. Um, I also noted, by the way, that uh, with the exception of Kate, uh, the rest of us uh, have not updated our photos. Uh, so it's going to be a bit of a shock to our readers uh, or to, to, to the listeners to, to see the updated versions of what we look like. Um, and they will note that uh, Bill Kaufman has less hair now than he did uh, 12 years ago. Um, uh, just uh, uh, the, uh, the main speakers, I, I'm also, by the way, I have with me a, a glass of bourbon, uh, which is the official spirit of FPR. And um, one of Kentucky's great gifts to the nation 
which brings us to one of our panelists, Kate Dalton, who is also one of Kentucky's great gifts to the nation and perhaps Yale University's last great gift to the nation. Uh, and uh, Kate is joining us from Louisville, from her home in Louisville. Uh, I noticed that Kate's first uh, appearance on FPR was March 5th of 2009, which means that she was one of the very first persons uh, to post on the FPR website. Um, also with us uh, is Bill Kaufman, the aforementioned Bill Kaufman, uh, who comes to us from Batavia, New York. Uh, author of, of many books. Uh, Bill's first appearance uh, uh, essay on FPR was March 2nd, 2009, which if I'm not mistaken, was the launch date of uh, the Front Porch Republic, um, because that is also uh, the first essay that appeared from Patrick Deneen, uh, who is joining us from South Bend, Indiana, uh, where, he has, uh, where he is sitting in his attic, I see, and uh, Patrick's first essay also appeared on March 2nd, 2009, uh, A Nation of Front Porches, which is uh, uh, what we might call a kind of foundational essay. Um, I'm, I'm um, in exile in our nation's capital. So uh, that's uh, where I'm uh, broadcasting from instead of the uh, great state of Michigan. Uh, but it, is, uh, it has been interesting, I can say. I've been here for two weeks now uh, walking around this city and um, sort of uh, observing things as they are. Um, it's also interesting that we do this in the year 2021, where among other things, we have witnessed the unprecedented use of the word unprecedented. Um, but uh, nonetheless, there are uh, plenty of things for us to talk about. Um, and, and I think one thing that we might want, and, and the idea is for the four of us to have a kind of free flowing conversation um, if people on, uh, who are online want to join in, they can uh, write something on the chat. We'll, we'll keep an eye on, I'll be keeping an eye on the chat um, in case anybody wants to uh, issue a question uh, that way or a comment that way. Um, and, and we'll have time for people to, to weigh in as well. Um, you know, one of the interesting questions, I maybe it's an interesting question, I can't promise you it is, but I, I, I was thinking as I was reading stuff this morning, you know, how much things have changed since 2009, but in other ways, um, how much things have stayed the same since 2009. Uh, there have been obvious differences, uh, but in a lot of ways, the problems that FPR was first addressing uh, 12 years ago um, are still the same problems uh, that we're dealing with. Uh, so, uh, I think all of us will have an opportunity to kind of uh, reflect on that issue, but I thought maybe a way to get into uh, the topic um, was uh, I, I was talking with, with uh, my friend and uh, friend of FPR, John Tamming, the other day, um, and we were commenting on this phrase, stuck at home. That's a, that's a term that has been coming up a lot uh, in the last year. We're all stuck at home. And that's really an interesting uh, turn of phrase. Um, it suggests something about the way our economy works. It certainly suggests something about the way our schools work. Um, it suggests an awful lot about the way our households uh, and our families work. And it suggests uh, a lot about the way uh, we entertain ourselves and, and a lot about the way we, we spend our time. Um, I mean, if FPR is about anything, it's about being home in some sort of fashion. So I, 
I kind of like to invite the uh, the three of you to sort of uh, reflect on that a little bit. Um, uh, what does it mean when you have a nation of people who are complaining about being stuck at home? And I'll drink some bourbon. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. We can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Yep. All right, let me, uh, actually I should, let me, uh, I need to preface my remarks uh, to address your introduction, Jeff. I, uh, <clears throat> this Zoom thing, I did one in October. Uh, we have an annual uh, reading of, uh, from the works of uh, a Batavian novelist named John Gardner, who was a prominent American novelist of the 60s and 70s, generally regarded as probably one of the two best writers uh, from Batavia. Uh, anyway, we do this at, uh, the Pocada, which is a very unselfconsciously funky diner. Uh, this year, of course, we couldn't uh, we couldn't gather we couldn't gather in person uh, due to uh, the the edicts of uh, the uh, of Governor Cuomo, who had been handed uh, unprecedented emergency powers uh, by the state legislature, which thereby reduced itself to the you know the status of a junior high school student council. So anyway, we did Zoom, and it, it went all right, but. Uh, I watched afterwards, and I uh, realized that it had this uh, strange distorting effect. It made it appear that my my hairline had uh, receded greatly, and it was uh, sort of dispiriting to see this. So I vowed then that if I ever had to do Zoom again, I would uh, to combat Zoom's uh, deceptions, I would wear a hat. Uh, so this morning I went over and got some hats out. I uh, muck dogs one, a Bill's hat. Um, in fact, uh, a little tip, uh, uh, take all that you have, and if you don't want to give it to the poor, put it on the bills to win the Super Bowl. It's, uh, I'd say, guaranteed. Uh, but anyway, I found what I thought was the most, uh, probably the most uncool hat in the history of, of chapeaus, uh, which I use as a nod to our French speaker, Kate. Um, a guy named El Boxall, who was uh, uh, Western New York in the early 60s, who invented this carnival game. Uh, called I Got It, which you would take to uh, uh, county fairs and uh, <clears throat> uh, church lawn fates and such. Uh, one uh, throws rubber balls into an enclosed uh, bingo-shaped board from a distance of several feet. Uh, the first to complete a straight line yells, I got it. A couple of years ago, I won a couple of games, got a prize. And so I thought, uh, this has to be the most unhip hat in history. So I got to wear it until at least my, my hair flattens out today. It says, I love to play, I got it. Um, and then one other footnote to that uh, and why I'm wearing the hat. When I was a kid, I would watch these PBS um, shows in which chin pullers would discuss the great issues of the day, you know. They'd pontificate, you know. Elizabeth Drew, what do you think of that? Um, it was also uh, self-serious. They may as well have been wearing papal tiaras. So I thought this would be my papal tiara as I deliver ex-cathedra announcements today. Uh, home. <clears throat> this isn't a direct answer to the question, but I've always been struck by how, uh, how seldom the word home is used in American political discourse. You know, it's a, uh, it's a powerful word. It's, it's resonant. It uh, uh, packs great emotional force. But the political class, you know, the ruling class, they never use it. I think it's, um, 
I think it's because they, those classes consist mostly of placeless careerists, um, homeless people whose goal is status and um, <clears throat> wielding power, the wielding of power over others. Um, they're not going to make a home in the place where they live. They're not going to uh, uh, cast down their buckets where they are, to use uh, uh, Booker T. Washington's great phrase. Um, and so the plagues that afflict modern America, you know, um, uh, the unseen America, uh, you know, rural areas, small towns, uh, collapsing inner cities, um, they don't register with uh, with decision makers at that level. Um, uh, those people are too far removed. Um, I mean, the solutions, the uh, 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 the balms to these problems can never come from from distant uh, uh, centers of power controlled by by rank strangers. They they have to come from from people from people on the ground, from people who are close to home, and yet that runs against the uh, the by now uh, ossified long long uh, legacy of uh, the centralization of power in this country. Um, you know the uh, uh, the political solution to the extent there is one is is, is the old small f federalist one to let Utah be Utah and let San Francisco be San Francisco and entrust people of these places with the power and the resources to run their own affairs. Uh, but there's uh, there's precious little uh, uh, constituency uh, for that. Um, I think not at all. Uh, at elite levels, where a home is a home is like a marketing slogan, you know. Kate, Kate, you want to weigh in? Um, I can try. I don't have a hat, but um, we'll let Bill just wear one for all of us. I. It was um, after 9-11, I was living out in the country then, and I remember very distinctly um, the lack of, we, we live on the route to the airport, and all of a sudden there were no airplanes for a couple of weeks. And it was awful in many ways, but it was also kind of peaceful and wonderful. And it has certainly been true in my part of town that I've seen, um, swings go up in front yards and I've seen more kids and more families in the last year than I've seen in the 10 years we've been back in the city. And I don't believe this is gonna last once we all get our shots, I guess, and sort of go back to normal life at some point. But um, I think people have had their children, people with high schoolers have had their children around in a way people with high schoolers have not had children around in a long time. And um, little kids have been home doing stuff in the yard in a way they haven't been doing in a long time. And that part of the pandemic I have loved. Um, there's plenty of it I haven't loved, but um, I do think that there has, that some, some people are going crazy, but um, I do think a lot of people have seen uh, the virtues of being stuck. I have anyway. I, I, of course, kind of like being at home and don't like traveling. And so it's easier for me. Dr. Benin. Dr. Paulette, 
<laughs> Thank you. I do prefer to be called doctor at all times. Uh, you know, there was a uh, there was a terrific there was a terrific essay uh, that appeared um, on the website The American Mind by by a friend of FPR and sometimes I think contributor uh, Christopher Wiley. Uh, Chris, uh, I know attended the last. I think it was the last, um, or maybe the uh, maybe the maybe the the previous to last uh, uh, conference that we held up in uh, up in Michigan. And he wrote, he wrote a little essay called Novel Coronavirus, Ancient Economy. And it was, it was hope giving, I think like Kate's comments uh, are hope giving. And he spoke of the, of the renewed importance of a kind of home economics and talked there about the origin of the word economy being literally law of the home or law of the household, oikos, nomos. Um, and spoke especially about um, the, um, the way in which the coronavirus was in a way, forcing people uh, back into a form of home economics, especially producing or doing their work at home, uh, as well as schooling at home, uh, uh, not sending uh, their children and not themselves sitting in automobiles usually for some significant portion of the day, driving away from home and then back home uh, in order to sleep somewhere inside that home. So it was a kind of hope-giving uh, essay in the sense that uh, maybe people would would have a renewed sense of what it was to be at home. I think speaking to Bill's lament about the loss of value uh, and um, uh, a kind of praise of being at home. Uh, but I guess I have a, a bit more of a characteristically pessimistic view of, of what this has meant or how we've been at home. I think for many, and again, Kate's I think is a, is a good corrective to this, but I think for many, being at home has been in many ways not being at home. It's been no more being at home uh, than if people were commuting into the office, and especially the, to the extent, and I say this ironically, you know, uh, with a sense of, uh, of sort of irony, uh, that uh, so much of our being at home has been really uh, sitting on screens. Um, I know that for my daughter, um, who's still with us at home, uh, much, of, much of this past year has been spent on a, on a screen and not with her friends. Uh, going to school would frankly be much preferable uh, to, uh, uh, to her sitting at home, uh, sometimes most of, the, most of the waking hours of the day uh, in order to uh, attend school. Uh, Chris, Chris spoke with some hope that maybe people would, would embrace homeschooling, but I think the more likely thing is that we've just acclimated uh, the next generation even more to lives lived in this kind of virtual non-reality. Uh, on screens, uh, and this is an acclamation they didn't need any more of, uh, and moreover that the rest of us didn't need any more of. Uh, I was offered a bit of a, a little bit of money to bring speakers into my class uh, this coming semester, uh, but we could only have them virtually. And I said, under no circumstance am I going, uh, I'm teaching in person, uh, but uh, under no circumstance am I gonna actually run a classroom in which I'm gonna have my students sit and watch somebody on a screen rather than have to listen to me drone on. At least I'm there in 3D. Uh, and I think uh, it's, it's incumbent on us um, as we hopefully come out of this pandemic, I think to fight against what I think will be the normalization of this virtual interaction that I think we've all grown far more accustomed to than, than, than I think we should uh, be and, uh, and I hope uh, will not be. When I think of what it is to be at home, it's not to be stuck at home. It's to be, I think as Kate describes, it's to be a, a home among other homes. It's to be at, to be at home is to be in a place with, 
in a place that we would broadly call a neighborhood or in a community. And that was that was I think the in some ways the, the deepest um, the, the the deepest insight and I think commendation of Front Porch Republic was uh, was to see the front porch as this intermediary space between the home and the and the public sphere between uh, the places where we might retreat and the places that draw us out and the need that American society had uh, to to uh, make these intermediate spaces between the public and the private far more robust. And I think the pandemic has, um, uh, you know, it was, this was already a weakened space, but I think it's made it weaker uh, because it has trained us to see home as a place of retreat, as a place of virtual reality. Um, and, uh, and I think to, um, in many ways, to, to a place of withdrawal from a sense of being connected or, or um, in, in a kind of set of relationships with other homes around us. So I, I think the pandemic, um, rather than having a sort of beneficial effect on making us in some ways better homebodies, uh, it's made us less capable of being uh, people who are in homes among homes. Uh, and, and it's going to take uh, far more than simply uh, an inoculation or a shot uh, to improve our prospects for living in homes, among homes uh, in modern America. If, if I can just riff on that a second. Um, <clears throat> I, I wanna read um, uh, just a paragraph from uh, Wendell Berry's essay, Local Culture. I mean, uh, 421, if you had the over under on the first Wendell Berry reference. Um, there used to be a sort of institution in our part of the country known as sitting till bedtime. After supper, when they weren't too tired, neighbors would walk across the fields to visit each other. They popped corn, my friend said, and ate apples and talked. They told each other stories. They told each other stories that they had heard before. Sometimes they told stories about each other, about themselves, living again in their own memories and thus keeping their memories alive. Among the hearers of these stories were always the children. When bedtime came, the visitors lit their lanterns and went home. My friend talked about this and thought about it. And then he said, they had everything but money. Uh, right. So our, our response uh, has largely been to try to solve this problem just by pumping more money into it. Uh, so I, you know, I, I've been thinking about this with regard to what Patrick was just saying. Um, uh, yeah, people have been at home, but what have they been doing there? And occasionally you'll see people go out, uh, not in DC because um, everybody's hunkering down. Um, and, and I mean, I, I think I'm one of the few people I've seen walking around the city without wearing a mask outside. Um, uh, but what do they do? They sit in front of screens. And if it's not a screen like this one, it's a television screen. Um, and if they're sitting in front of a television screen, they're either consuming mass entertainment media, such as it is, um, or they're watching the news endlessly. Uh, and uh, I think one of the things that's become quite clear about uh, television news is that um, it deepens our tribalism. Uh, it deepens our divisions. Um, if you read, for example, Matt Taibbi's book, uh, Hate Inc., uh, the, the way that uh, all these news agencies are just identifying target audiences and tapping into the worst impulses of, of their target demographic uh, by appealing to the most primitive sectors of the brain, the sectors that deal with hate and anger. Right? Um, these are all corporate enterprises that are ginning up hate and anger as much as they can 
and then selling you stuff um, on the side. Uh, and, and so as dysfunctional as our politics is, uh, it, it does seem to me that there's a kind of correlation here between this sort of hunkering down and just this ratcheting up of um, the, the, the anger and the hate and the intensity of our politics that has been pretty destructive. Go ahead, Bill. doesn't know how to unmute apparently. How about that? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I said you being stuck at home, I just wanna say, uh, uh, first of all, uh, I say I'm uh, absolutely opposed to the coronavirus and uncompromisingly so. But uh, to give the devil his due, it, uh, it did get me out of going to Buffalo to see a touring production of Hello Dolly. Um, this happened, it was, uh, we had tickets like uh, a day after the, uh, the clampdown. So um, grateful for that. But what, what I did uh, uh, when this whole thing hit is I went back and reread a, a great little book book length blank verse poem by Josephine Young Case, called it Midnight on the 31st of March. Uh, Josephine Young Case was the daughter of Owen Young, who is the president of General Electric. So she was kind of this salt of the earth girl next door type. Um, anyway, she wrote a uh, number of uh, poetry and novels and uh, uh, in the 30s and 40s. Uh, this book is uh, really, a, really an odd book. Uh, uh, set in a little town called Saundersville, New York, fictive town. And at midnight on the 31st of March in the 1930s, the town is completely cut off from the rest of the world um, for unexplained reasons. Uh, no electricity, uh, which I think mean, kind of a joke on her father. Uh, power goes off. Uh, any, all the roads leading out of town just disappear. Um, people are sort of thrown back on themselves. Uh, there is, as one character says, only Saugersville in all the world. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of an autarchist delight, I guess. Um, recovering from the initial shock, people kind of adapt uh, in their own ways. They uh, uh, dairymen milk the cows by, by kerosene rather than electricity. Uh, 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 horses replace farm machinery. Uh, people grow hops to make beer. And uh, they deal with it in, in different ways. Uh, 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 I'm going to say here, I have some notes. Uh, you know, some find satisfaction in the communal self-sufficiency and others kind of kick back against being stuck in this, this hick town. But uh, here is all, as, uh, as the young heroine of the story goes, says, um, the, uh, a lot is lost, you know, um, you no longer have uh, Roman Cokes, you no longer have Clark Gable, all that sort of thing. But uh, much is gained. Uh, character concludes, life is harder than it used to be, but troubles are more real. We're thankful that what's bad or good is right beneath your hand. You know just where you're at and what to do. We're all of us more real and more alive. And Saundersville is real, more like a town and not a gas pump on a concrete road. The uh, uh, 11 months into the uh, Saugersville's disconnection from the rest of the world, which is about where we are now actually, 
Um, a young man of, of learning and ambition who's kind of chafed under the new dispensation is, is skiing on a, a slope outside of town and he has an epiphany. I'm alive and this is where I live. Um, I had wondered uh, last March if uh, this would be our experience. Um, and I don't think it has been really, uh, as Patrick said. I mean, I think, and Jeff, uh, I think two things have, have militated against it. One is the uh, political reaction in states like, especially states like New York and Michigan, where civic and communal and artistic life was uh, prescribed, essentially. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can't go, you, you can't go to the high school basketball game, you can't go to the theater, you can't go to the bar, you can't go to the restaurant. Um, so Saundersville, as a, uh, uh, as a uh, collective entity, it doesn't exist. I mean, it's broken into, you know, all its constituent particles and that's it. Uh, and the other one, of course, is that uh, uh, we are sitting home and watching, you know, consuming uh, uh, the mass media and social media. And so those become our realities. You know, we're, we're always lectured to, to look, look away rather than look nice to look, you know, look to the things closest to us. Uh, and this has happened with a vengeance. Uh, you know, we were, uh, uh, we were joking beforehand, before we went on, before we went on the air, about uh, uh, football and the Bills, and that uh, you know, we've been watching the games and uh, uh, which is amusing. But all high school sports are canceled. We haven't had them now for a year. I mean, we should be down at the, uh, you know, down at the gymnasium watching the, the boys and girls basketball team instead of, you know. <clears throat> directing our attention to, you know, to paid mercenaries, you know, whose, uh, whose connections with the cities they ostensibly represent are usually pretty tenuous. Um, well, you know, I, I hate to, I hate preachiness and uh, didacticism and sanctimony. So <clears throat> we're all complicit. I mean, when, uh, when Taron Johnson ran that interception back 101 yards last week, and I was, uh, cheering as loud as the next uh, guy on a bar stool in Buffalo. But, uh, you know, I, it, I don't know if we, uh, this, uh, I'm alive and this is where I live. I, I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know how many of us have, uh, have made that avowal. I, I mean, the, the, the negatives are, are really obvious and particularly in, in, colder and more locked down states. You know, Kentucky, it's been a little bit more open and partly because we can go outside more easily and partly because they've just been able to keep things like high school sports going a, a little bit more. Um, but, you know, the, 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 you know, the fact that the, the tech companies have had such a wonderful year, Wall Street's had such a wonderful year um, and all our local mom and pop businesses are dying is, is, a, is a real effect. How, however, in an effort to just try to find what I can among the wreckage, you know, I will say for my own kids at least, the um, enforced um, time with parents, which has, has been decent in its own way, has certainly clarified for them the need for human interaction and human connection. And, and, you know, the minute they can have, minutes they can have with the friends that they're allowed to see or feel comfortable seeing are all that more precious to them. And I do think they have 
taken a lesson in value of, of real, real interaction at work, real interaction um, for social life that, um, that's become crystal clear to them and all this. And for my younger daughter, it, 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 it very much clarified how she wants to finish her academic career. And it's, it's not on Zoom and it's not at a big university. So there are these little pluses. Um, I, I do feel we're all being kind of dragged out to sea in an undertow and we have the option to swim parallel to shore in an effort to try to make it. And um, maybe we will, and maybe we won't. It's not a great situation um, to be in, but I am trying to find what, what particles of um, goodness I can find in this. If I could jump in on that, um, since this is called the prospects for localism, uh, I think Kate uh, really hits on, on a real, um, you know, one, certainly one or several aspects of the pandemic uh, that make the prospects for localism already uh, which were already daunting, um, make, uh, make them uh, almost, uh, almost impossible to realize. And it is the, the way in which the pandemic accelerated certain trends uh, mm -hmm. that were already, were already well underway uh, that, that Bill mentioned, the trends toward concentration of power. And I think one, one thing that uh, you know, we can already see, and I think certainly historians will look back on, is just the absolute mind-boggling concentration of both economic and political power uh, that has been a result of, of the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, in some ways this was to a certain extent unescapable. I mean, people were really forced uh, to live in this online world and uh, in many cases to be sort of kept afloat uh, by the largesse of the printing presses of the federal government. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, this is one of those occasions where, you know, I forget, was it uh, George W. Bush or someone, it was probably James Madison who said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, this seemed to me uh, exactly the kind of crisis that both uh, titanic economic and titanic political power um, were, were ripe um, and ready uh, to exploit. Uh, we, if we look back, as Jeff did recently, um, uh, if you look back at some of the older FPR discussions, uh, when, uh, when myself and Bill and others were writing pretty actively, there was a little bit of an interesting tension in, uh, among the, the authors. And the tension was, in order to secure localism in this, in this, uh, in this age uh, of globalization, this age of concentration, do you need the assistance of public authority or what, or do you need in some ways the public authority to step back um, and, uh, and let us be laissez-faire? And I, I guess as a consequence of um, certainly what we've seen in recent uh, months, um, I'm actually pretty, I, I used to sort of straddle this divide. I'm pretty much hardcore, we need government uh, to actively intervene and force uh, <laughs> sort of, tilt the scale back toward localism. Now, whether that's a possibility uh, is another matter. But in other words, I think that the, the, um, the tilt has gone so far to one side that there is really no prospect uh, for securing a kind, of, a kind of vibrant localism 
uh, unless the kind of the, the, you have a certain amount of authority and weight behind it. And I, and I, I think, um, we, I think we certainly can see that this would be the case when it comes to economic concentration. I think now the power, what we've seen now, the power, the influence of the concentrated, especially the technology companies, but not only the technology companies, mm -hmm. it's just so massive uh, and so almost unassailable that it will require something like uh, the federal government uh, to step in and begin acting against these monopolistic institutions, these economic institutions, uh, at, while at the same time, really actively supporting um, through, a, through a kind of broad variety of way, and I, and I think we need to be experimental, but supporting uh, the more local businesses, uh, making, it's not just leveling the playing field, it's actually making the field uh, uh, better for, uh, for small businesses, which right now, of course, have had this tremendous disadvantage with the pandemic, uh, but already we're, we're um, trying to combat uh, the, the kind of logic of monopoly that I think is built into the capitalist order. And I think we're gonna need some kind of public response to the rising, what, what Bill was talking about, the rising power of the ruling class, and in particular, what we call the meritocracy. Uh, the, the ruling class in this country uh, has really driven us into, you know, into a, into a dead end. Uh, they are really, it seems to me, baldly ruling for their own advantage now, uh, uh, shrouding themselves in claims of egalitarianism uh, while lining their pockets uh, and uh, feathering their beds and every other metaphor you can think of. Uh, you know, the places that are that are the most complicit in in uh, advancing the inequality in our country today are the loudest uh, in, in affirming their own commitment to equality. Uh, and and this, is not, uh, this is not sort of a, a hypocrisy or an accident. I think this is just simply just a, a, a completely sh you know, shameless effort to, uh, to portray themselves as some kind of paragons of virtue uh, while shaming the rest of us into, uh, into, our, into our places. So I, I think that there needs to be a real effort to break up those monopolies, uh, quite frankly. Uh, again, through creative ways, uh, whether it's taxing endowments, uh, Daniel Markovitz and his new book on meritocracy suggests forcing these institutions through uh, basically the power of the federal government to accept about half of their student body, essentially um, based on socioeconomic status. Uh, in other words, the kinds of people they usually don't accept into those places. But I also think there needs to be a real effort to strengthen the status position um, uh, and um, the, the importance of more regional institutions uh, throughout the country. It seems to be the genius of America to the extent that it had a genius was that there was no, there was no one center. Unlike you know, Germany with Berlin or France with Paris, America was a place of a lot of regional centers. Uh, and it, and you know, it wasn't just Washington DC, or it wasn't just New York City. Those were, those were important cities. Certainly New York has always been important, but it was not, you know, it wasn't to the exception of, or the exclusion of Chicago or Los Angeles or Cincinnati or uh, you know, the, the host of other uh, major places around this country. Uh, and so to, to revivify the kinds of regional education institutions, to make those the places where our ruling class is more likely to be educated in order that they can go and have important positions in the places where they are, not just to be sort of refined and sent to Washington DC or New York City. That seems to me to be absolutely necessary to break up this other monopoly uh, of, of, of the meritocrats who I think we have to regard now as a kind of, uh, as a hostile, 
form of tyranny uh, that is that is willfully governing us unjustly. And I think until we begin to see that this is a kind of question of of regime uh, of a regime that is unjust, uh, that we won't have the kind of political will uh, to assert the power to correct what I think is now a fundamentally unjust uh, and uh, unacceptable form of political, cultural, social, and economic governance. You know, we, we've we've heard a lot in the last couple of weeks about all these attacks on democracy. You know, and and the uh, uh, you know the, the breakdown of American democracy. And one of my responses to that has been, American democracy. I'd like to see that tried. <laughs> you know, it'd be awfully nice if we had a functioning democracy going on. Um, and I was thinking relative to Kate's comments, and, and uh, I was thinking this, and I saw uh, Jonathan Weyer's uh, comment in the chat section, what kinds of places have been resilient uh, in the face of the events of the past year? I'm not talking only about the pandemic. I'm talking about other events of the past year as well. Um, they're the places that Patrick was talking about in his first set of comments that had kind of healthy mediating institutions, um, that had a, a vibrant public life, uh, had a vibrant civic order. Um, so I'm thinking about, for example, uh, my town of Holland, Michigan, where uh, um, you still have um, active churches um, and uh, you know large uh, percentages of membership in churches. Um, you have people who have long been serious about supporting local businesses. Uh, we have a very vibrant downtown. Uh, they've been serious about supporting local businesses. And so those local businesses, which have a kind of good Dutch Calvinist frugalness about them, uh, had enough reserves that they could survive um, some of the stuff that's going on. Um, there are places where people take pride in their communities. Uh, so um, let's go back to the mostly peaceful protests of this past summer. And look at the places where um, the breakdowns really occurred. And, um, and then look at the places where uh, breakdowns didn't occur. So in Holland, for example, uh, we did have protests that were indeed mostly peaceful. Um, and one of the reasons why uh, they were mostly peaceful is because the people in the town care about their city and they don't wanna trash it. Uh, you know, they're not going to break into the stores. They're not going to, they're not going to break windows. Uh, they're not going to burn things um, because it's their home. Um, and it's a place they care about. Uh, so one of the things that we've seen this past summer, I think, was um, people going into places that were not their homes and then trashing them in the name of, um, uh, what, an ideology, or, or I, I think in many cases, a, a, a righteous sense, sense of justice. Um, or they were trashing the places. So this happened, for example, around 62nd Street in Chicago, uh, which got trashed, not by people coming in from outside Chicago, but from the people in Chicago, because it's a pretty dysfunctional place. I mean, there really isn't any healthy civic order there. Um, and it's not what particularly well designed. Uh, so you can, you can sort of see kind of years of uh, rage at the disorder of the whole thing um, just kind of spilling over. Um, and, th and that makes me think that uh, for all our talk about national solutions uh, and, and, and so forth, 
if democracy is going to work, it's going to work at the local level um, where people are forming neighborhoods and homes that they actually care about um, because they are indeed actually worth caring about. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah it's a... Uh... It's a question of it's a question of scale, right? Um, <clears throat> uh, people need to know each other multidimensionally rather than than unidimensionally. They need to, to know each other in various in various aspects. I think of I think of local civic healthy local civic groups. I think I, I think the one in particular where you'd have people. I can think of one where there's a one enterprise. Uh, a uh, uh, an assembly of God church woman and a very out uh, gay person working side by side, like in the in the in the uh, the labor of of neighbors uh, in labor of love, um, and it's because they know each other um, in a rounded way, you know, and I th I don't I just don't think that's possible at a larger scale. Um, you, if you get any kind of a larger scale, they're going to know each other unidimensionally, you know, they're just going to know each other uh, uh, as an image on a, a, a TV screen or a computer screen. And it's going to be, you know, it, it, it's not going to be, you know, Cindy and Barb. I mean, it, it's going to be, you know, you're a religious not, you're a homo, whatever. I mean, it's just, I, I don't see, I don't see how this kind of healthy civic life is possible at a larger scale. And I don't mean it has to be in a rural area or a small town. I mean, you look, the, uh, uh, some of the greatest, uh, some of the great, some of the great decentralists of the 20th century were New York City people. I mean, Dorothy Day, uh, uh, Jane Jacobs, Paul Goodman, Norman Mailer, Kirk Sale. You know, I mean, they understood the interconnectedness of, of neighborhoods and small places. But you know, I mean, politically, I mean, the scale is so massive. I mean, you have, I mean, you know. A member of Congress now represents 750,000 people. I mean, you know, I know that what Madison, Madison, who was very much a, a centralist, large federalist at the time, was worried that 40,000 were too many. And that was at a time of, you know, uh, they didn't have all our blessings of transportation and the, uh, communication. But, you know, you don't know the people who represent you at, the, at that level. Um, you know, I, most of us probably don't know our member of Congress. If we do, we just... In, in a glancing way. So I don't see how any kind of healthy political movement is possible at anything other than the most, uh, than the most local level. And so I, that's why I prefer to see power devolved as, 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 as radically as possible. One of the um, strengths that Kentucky has is it's got 120 counties and they were set up so that everyone was within a day's ride of their county courthouse. And every so often some um, efficiency expert comes through and talks about how Kentucky needs to consolidate some of its county governments and be more efficient and spend less money. But it's actually um, a wonderful way of keeping the state a little bit decentralized, at least on the county government level, which in rural counties is, is the government. So um, that's an old structure that somebody wisely set up years ago that is still doing good work here outside of the big cities. And, and I would certainly agree with Bill, you know, I'm in Louisville, Louisville fell apart this summer. It was incredibly depressing to be here. 
we lived the mayor's near the mayor's house. There was a helicopter over his house every night for a while. It was like, you know, I'm, I'm glad I'm not a veteran. I would have had PTSD from the, uh, the helicopter sounds, but um, it, was, it was painful. But the city is also small enough and interconnected enough that despite the best efforts of the paper to just um, demonize people, uh, there's, a, I think, a good segment of the city that's trying to um, act sanely in the face of, a, of this crisis and, and acknowledge, for example, that our murder rate has gone up enormously and it's all in the black side of town and it's almost all black people dying. And it, you know, this is not something we should be complacent about. Um, so it, I have a little hope there. Um, and, uh, it, but it, it, re it remains to be seen. Um, even in Portland, um, which has continued to fall apart, even that mayor is starting to get fed up and he's not a very strong person. So, um, but that, but the, and that city has, has some significant issues, but again, it is a smaller city. And in that smaller smallness, I think there is a relative moderate sizeness. There's some hope. Um, you know, you know, I going back to what Bill just said a minute ago. Um, I think this uh, part of the problem that we're not really thinking about enough um, is this kind of multi-dimensional view we get of people, and this is one of the reasons why identity politics is really bad for our politics, because it encourages us to see people in terms of one accidental property that they possess. Um, and that furthermore, and, and this strikes me as an even bigger problem, because of that one accidental property that they possess, uh, we assume that we can know what motivates them. Uh, th this to me has been one of the really striking things over the past year, um, is that people tend to assume about themselves, they have, first of all, that they know what they're motivated by, and they're always motivated by good things, um, and that their motivations are complex and, and multivariant while people in the other tribe are always motivated by bad things and their motivations are typically quite simple. Um, and, and so this description of motivation um, and usually in the most simple-minded way imaginable, um, I think has become a really dangerous part of our politics. Um, and, and again, go, to go back to this question of scale, the more you scale things, the more that problem is, uh, is, is going to manifest itself uh, and you're going to make judgments about people and you're going to make judgments about what motivated them um, based upon perceptions and images um, that may or, or may not be true. Um, and and uh, one serious effect of that is going to be the kind of fomenting of distrust. Uh, and so you're going to have a social sphere where distrust uh, proliferates. Um, as, as factionalism proliferate, I mean, Madison says this in Federalist 10, right? That one of the, he says one of the advantages of the increase of factionalism is that it will foment distrust in the body politic. Well, we're living with the consequences of that. Um, and, and so um, the problem is that we see people in our tribe multidimensionally, and we see people in other tribes unidimensionally. 
Uh, and, and I just don't see any way that that ends well. And, and again, the more you, you stretch this out on a kind of national scale, the more pronounced that problem is going to become. Yeah, if I can jump in on that, uh, Jeff. Um, I too have been, let us say, uh, less than less than persuaded that we are in the midst of a restoration of democracy, uh, because like you, I agree. Uh, I don't I don't really think we live in a democracy. Of course, Madison said we wouldn't live in a democracy because we live in a republic. But um, you know, to use the to use the political philosopher who Madison and others were reading uh, at the time that America was founded. Uh, Montesquieu, Montesquieu argued, uh, and I think there would be a wide agreement uh, with this among this group, Montesquieu argued that democracy can really only take place on a, on a relatively small scale uh, because it has to be, uh, it, has to, it has to rely upon argument and persuasion uh, that does take in that multivarious multiplicity uh, of, uh, of the persons who are involved, engaged in self-rule and self-governance. The more that we feel voiceless in our politics, the more anonymous we become, the more we are prone to this kind of team-like partisanship that we see today. And as well, the more we are prone to see that the solution to our voicelessness becomes violence, right? I mean, I think protest is one way in which we can, uh, is, is one way in which we express the frustration of our voicelessness, right? It's people who are voiceless, people who often feel they can't be heard in the political system uh, that will resort to protest. But the other form that that will frequently take, that voicelessness will frequently take is violence. Uh, because when you are voiceless, when you can't express uh, yourself as a full multi multifarious human being, uh, the kind of default increasing will become uh, the use of violence. Because if you're gonna treat me as an object, I will simply act as a kind of blunt object. And to the extent that we see a kind of, it seems to me, a kind of roiling and growing uh, both amount, capacity, and even call for violence in our politics, I think that's a sign not that our democracy is unhealthy, uh, but that we really don't live in a democracy. And that's a consequence of not living in a democracy. If, if I, I do believe that there is, there is a wish that was expressed by, uh, by our new president yesterday. There's a wish to overcome the partisanship in our country, the deep division in our country. But this will not be solved by devising the right policy in Washington, DC. Since there's always going to be, you know, roughly 51% is going to win and 49% is going to lose. Uh, and I, you know, I go back to what, uh, what Bill said, I think in, in his first set of remarks, that again, in, in one of the geniuses of, of the United States in, at its outset, was a recognition that this would be a place of genuine diversity, not the faux diversity we see talked about on college campuses today, which everyone has to think the same way, but genuine regional uh, and, and variety and distinctness and cultures uh, and traditions that called for you know, differences in how we would govern ourselves. So this, kind of, this localism isn't just sort of a quaint idea of a bunch of hicks who wanna sit on front porches and drink their bourbon, it is actually the solution to the political problem that we face today, which isn't just merely partisanship, it's that we live increasingly in, an, in it, not in a democracy, but in an empire. And Montesquieu argued that, the, that the, the basic form of political rule that takes place in an empire is force and fear. That these are the two, the two ingredients you need to make an empire work. 
I think if we actually do value and do desire democracy, what we actually need to do uh, is to strengthen our capacity to govern ourselves and to give genuine, uh, you know, genuine stakes uh, and genuine uh, um, uh, responsibility to people to govern themselves in these local places. And short of that, all we're going to have is a kind of succession of various kinds of tyrannies that will take place uh, by whichever party happens to win at any given time. And if that's the future we want, well then I think that we can very easily see where that's going to lead us. And if not, that's not the future that we want. This isn't a kind of romantic nostalgia. This is how we will actually solve, it seems to me, the deepest, most divisive problems that are facing American society today, which is to let people govern themselves in the places where they are. I wanted to ask you three something, um, given the current climate, do you think there's maybe um, some opportunity um, to harness some of the uh, feelings that's more on the left to bring back some, some real antitrust legislation, um, such as the Glass-Steagall Act or, or something like it, or even, even the, in our lifetime, the, the contiguous banking laws changed and that made it enormous, uh, made possible the, the enormous centralization of the banks, which has an incredible effect on local econ and regional economies. Um, I think there, it seems to me there might be an opportunity to create some partnerships on legislation like that. Um, and I wonder too, if there isn't an opportunity with, with some of the Bernie voters to talk about distributism, I can't say that word, you know what I mean? Um, that kind of distributed uh, federalized small ownership um, that Chesterton and Belloc talked about and that uh, really the Southern agrarians were talking about that is, um, has sort of, has a lot of the good effects of what today's young socialists want while giving them ownership and control over a small amount of property in a way that national socialism does not. Do you all see any opportunities there? Um, yeah, to your second point, uh, Kate, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> making common cause with the Bernie people and such. I mean, a lot of the, uh, as, uh, as uh, uh, Wendell Berry has said, um, there's really no political movement in which our ideas find expression. But there are a lot of really healthy, I think, smaller social and economic movements in which they do. I mean, uh, uh, farmer, farmers markets and, and co-ops and community support agriculture and uh, indigenous theater and this sort of thing. And these are almost all, I think probably, these people almost always see themselves on the left, at least the ones I know who are involved in this. And yet these are, uh, you know, they're very much in the, in the, uh, what I would argue is kind of our lineage, which can, which stretches back to the anti-federalists and, and the populists and the Southern agrarians and the Catholic workers and the distributists and such, and even takes in parts of the new left with the participatory democracy stuff and then the, the libertarianish old right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the, the left right thing is, is dead. Um, it's, uh, it's more, as Patrick said, it's the, the ruling class against us and, uh, uh, you know, at some point, one wishes that we could, I mean, I mean, there are always these, <clears throat> there are always these uh, kind of cultural obstacles that get in the way of any kind of le left, right uh, alliance. I was involved in some things a number of years ago 
uh, actually a group called, uh, a group that took its name from what I think is the, the most beautiful political slogan in our country's history, Come Home America, uh, which was uh, what uh, the great South Dakota patriot uh, uh, George McGovern ran on. Um, you know, and we tried to create a lot of left-right things and you run into problems, but these people are absolutely worth talking to. And, but again, you can talk to them locally. I mean, I know, I know all these people are involved in the stuff around here and they agree with us. But once this stuff gets, gets uh, translated and it gets kind of devitalized and spoken at an elite level, it, you just you lose the connection, you know? I mean, I'm not sure how you could have any kind of, well, we need our, our 1,001 local movements that, that somehow coalesce. And I'm, I'm, not sure how that, I'm not sure how that happens, but, but uh, it's the only way out, I think. Uh, yeah, a couple of thoughts on that, because um, it, it's really a vital question. Um, on the one hand, again, uh, FPR started in uh, 2009 in part as a result of uh, the financial collapse and the obvious corruption of our financial and banking institutions. Um, um, the left, um, so I guess, uh, under the Obama administration, had eight years uh, to try to put together some kind of functional response to that uh, and failed. Um, I, I don't have much faith. Um, and, and we saw what the DNC did to Bernie in uh, 2016. Um, so Richard Rorty wrote a book maybe 20, 25 years ago or something like that called Achieving Our Country. And one of his arguments in that book um, is that the modern American left, uh, Rorty being a man of the left, um, was divided between the cultural left and the economic left. And the economic left was this kind of old, like his parents, right? These old kind of uh, hardcore economic leftists. Um, and then he sees this rise of the, of the cultural left coming out of the universities and post-structuralism and deconstruction and all that. And, and, and uh, the book is, is really about what's going on in the contemporary left. And he said, we are in danger right now of having the old economic left being swallowed whole by this cultural left. Um, and I think that is in fact what's happened. Um, and, and one example of that, uh, just very recent example, might be um, the, the kind of reaction that you're seeing to this deplatforming going on on uh, social media, where uh, I think for, for most of us, uh, you know, if, if uh, Twitter closes down Donald Trump's Facebook account, um, I'm not going to use that as an opportunity to pontificate about the First Amendment. I don't find the part, First Amendment particularly interesting um, in this situation. I, I want to know what's being done about Twitter. Right. I, I don't care what Twitter is doing about Donald Trump. I want to know who's doing something about Twitter. Um, and, and I'm inclined uh, to agree with Patrick on this, that um, if the federal government is not going to step in and break up these tech uh, monopolies, uh, if, if the federal government's not going to step in and break up the banks, um, it's not going to happen. Um, after the Dodd-Frank reforms, the amount of investment capital that was owned by the six largest banks increased by about 20%. Um, uh, we know that uh, the Democratic leadership 
is utterly beholden to the large tech companies uh, who pour tens of millions of dollars uh, into their coffers. Um, so I, I have absolutely zero hope that the democratic establishment as currently constructed is going to do anything about these toxic monopolies that are corrupting our system. Yeah, um, you know, what's, what's striking about thinking about this in left-right terms is, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think Bill's right that uh, we're seeing the sort of breakdown of the old left-right divide in, in really interesting ways. Uh, and so you do have a, you do still see that that old economic left among the Bernie folks, uh, but it's clear that the cultural left that Rorty feared is pretty ascendant. Uh, but there's been there's been some interesting observations. David David Goodhart, uh, who's a writer in uh, in England, journalist in England, wrote a book um, called "The Road to Somewhere," uh, contrasted somewhere people from uh, anywhere people, the kind of uh, grounded, rooted people versus the kind of cosmopolitan, deracinated elite. Uh, what Goodhart noted it, it was happening in England uh, seems to be happening to some extent, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next four years uh, in the United States, which is that it seems to be, as Goodhart tells it, it's easier for the right to move left on economics than it is for the left to move right on social issues. Uh, and that's an interesting phenomenon, right? Why is it that uh, increasingly, you see a number of uh, figures uh, who are becoming more ascendant in the Republican Party who are far more willing to talk about breaking up tech companies, uh, talk about taking on uh, uh, various kinds of monopolies, uh, increasingly supporting various kinds of social programs. Uh, I won't name one disgraced senator, but one disgraced senator uh, was calling for $2,000 checks and breaking up uh, the tech monopolies. And I don't think he's going to be the last one. Uh, what, what I think a number of these ambitious political figures are realizing is that this is where the base increasingly of the Republican Party is. And that base used to be the base of the Democratic Party. Uh, and they have moved increasingly into the Republican Party. So the, you know, as Bill put it, the left and the right in some ways are done, uh, but they're also kind of, uh, uh, there's kind of interesting realignment taking place. And it may end up sort of being a new kind of divide uh, that in which for the, maybe, you know, uh, maybe not for the first time, but certainly for the first time in the post-World uh, War II era, we see a, a politics based more on class uh, uh, than we've certainly seen uh, in, in the last number of decades. Uh, I think the left now is desperate to prevent that from happening. And this is, I think, one of the reasons we see the stress on identity politics. Identity politics is one way you avoid uh, a kind of you know, a redefinition of politics along class lines. But I, I really don't know that it can be avoided uh, uh, much against the hopes of those who are seeking to do so. I have one other kind of hope uh, uh, to answer Kate's question, and it's a little bit more abstract and theoretical, a hope for the prospects of localism. Whenever I would go and speak on college campuses or uh, uh, various other uh, places that would invite me to come speak uh, about these kinds of themes, the first question you would always get is, well, aren't local places the places of oppression? Aren't these the places uh, you know, that, that uh, endorse slavery, endorse the oppression of, of, of people for their beliefs, for their practices, for who they loved and so forth? And it's always you know, that that question in the American context has always been very difficult. Uh, because 
the, the most ardent defenders of localism, at least uh, after the Civil War, tended to be the people who had been at least historically aligned uh, with the Confederacy, or at least with the remnants of the Confederacy. I think, though, increasingly what we're seeing is uh, it's not the local uh, that you're likely to find the most sort of vivid forms of oppression, the suppression of belief, uh, the effort to uh, uh, prevent you from speaking. Uh, what we're seeing now is it's the sort of the global institutions, the supranational institutions, right? What we call now deplatforming or canceling. This is now something that's taking place at national and international levels. You cannot escape it. You can't move somewhere else to escape the mob who want to deplatform you, uh, to shame you, to put your name uh, into, uh, into oblivion. Uh, this is now a global phenomenon uh, and there is no place to go. The virtue of, even if there were, uh, you know, there were forms of authority and limitation in local places, and I think it's true in all times and all places, you could at least go somewhere else uh, if need be. Uh, it's, I'm not necessarily commending that you simply escape, but that possibility was always there. That was, again, one of the beauties of an actually diverse country, is if you didn't like Utah, you could move to San Francisco and vice versa. Uh, that there were places you could go to sort of uh, to find the place where you could be who you wanted to be. Uh, what we're seeing now is this now globalized, now entirely inescapable form of oppression. And it seems to me a kind of turn to the local will become increasingly the space and the place where we can become really um, ardent defenders of a kind of liberty uh, that was once used as a kind of hammer uh, to, to, to argue against localism, but I think increasingly will be seen as a really viable option if you really do value liberty, uh, especially in this age of canceling uh, and of sort of tech monopoly uh, um, uh, 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 censorship and so forth. So I, I actually think that there are prospects for localism in a, in a bigger sense that I think uh, maybe for the first time in my lifetime uh, is likely to be seen in a much different light uh, than it has been typically the case. Yeah, I, I, I have to believe, Patrick, that the, uh, the bright-spirited kids must be punching back against all this uh, big tech and cancellation stuff, aren't they? The, uh, the, the, this seeming campaign to outlaw humor is, uh, is really uh, dismaying. I, I, I think a lot of them are really afraid. Uh, it's, it's awfully difficult to do so when what you're seeing is not just canceling you, it's, it's actually, you know, destroying your prospects to make a, to make a living uh, and, to, uh, and to lead a peaceful life. So it's, it's, it, it really takes a kind of extraordinary courage. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know, it was Mark, Mark Twain who uh, did his uh, best thinking in Elmira and Buffalo in upstate New York said, uh, uh, irreverence is the, uh, uh, the champion of liberty and it's only sure defense. Uh, Twain, I'm sure, is on his way to being canceled somewhere, everywhere. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, the... Uh, this idea that, that humor, irreverence of any sort is being turned into a thought crime, you know. Remember when we were kids and someone would say something kind of outre or out of bounds, and <clears throat> when he's chastised, uh, his, uh, his defense is always, hey, it's a free country. You never hear anyone say that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I uh, um, have an essay that kind of titled Dave Chappelle Will Save the World, uh, because he's fearless. He'll make fun of anyone. Uh, and uh, more than ever, that's what we need is somebody who will fearlessly make fun 
of, of absolutely anyone. I, I wanted to add uh, one thing to Patrick's comment, um, and that is uh, the perversity of drawing all these local economies into this national and increasingly uh, transnational system um, that is a completely unsustainable uh, system of economic exchange. So Jason Peters and I have been arguing for years over what's going to come first, the economic collapse or the environmental collapse. Um, and he would, he would uh, fold the energy collapse into the environmental collapse. Uh, our federal government is now up to $28 trillion of debt. And, uh, and they're uh, debating uh, already, and it's, it will happen, they're going to be adding very quickly another three or $4 trillion uh, um, to this debt. Um, what it looks like when the, all that uh, uh, comes apart, I, I can't say for sure. Uh, but what I can say is um, this hypermobility, uh, because you're exactly right, there's no place to go. There won't be any place to go except maybe, you know, uh, you know Northern Ontario where, uh, you know, John's sitting in, in, in his library right now. Uh, there will be no place to go. And um, uh, unless you have uh, already well-formed local economies, um, there's going to be a lot of hurt and pain out there uh, when, the, when the day of reckoning comes, when these bills come due. And um, so I, I think, for example, the work, uh, we had Chuck Marone speaking at the conference a number of years ago. And Marone is a guy who's been thinking really seriously at, uh, about this in really creative ways. And that is, um, how do you create really economically sound and socially strong communities. Um, and I know Patrick, you were on his, on his podcast, uh, had an interesting conversation about this, um, that are gonna be resilient. Uh, and they're are gonna be resilient when environmental uh, dislocations occur, when energy dislocations occur, and especially when economic dislocations occur. Um, and that goes to, to your point that, that um, localism is not a niche thing. It is the future. Um, and uh, so the, the debate is not going to be about what um, a, a strong, powerful nation or empire in, in the guise of a nation looks like. It's going to be what kind of communities are going to be resilient enough to withstand the trouble that's coming. Well, it, it is certainly true, and we've seen it even in this pandemic, that when there's a time of crisis, where does everybody go? Everybody goes home. Yeah. Um, and if you have a home to go to, you're, you'll be okay. And if you don't have a home to go to, you're going to have to figure out how to make one. But um, I, I think that's what you're saying, that, that that's going to force a localism on us. And that may be the case, but you know, I've got friends who've been hoping for years for a economic crisis and we have one and, and what we're seeing is a lot of centralization and it's, it's gonna take some other effort to, um, to counterbalance that. And, I, and I'm with Patrick that some of these solutions um, need to be federal in the sense that the federal government needs to, to find a way to give us room to have regional and um, local autonomy, um, or it, it's very hard for to make that happen. But I also think it's true that, that um, 
it's all based on the character of the people whose laws, you know, whose whose characters ultimately create the laws under which we all live. And um, if if anything has been made clear to me this year, it is a it is a existential character crisis in my country, which of course we've all seen and known about, but it's it's crystal clear. Um, and, and without change there, it's going to be hard to have any change at the top. I think we could not find better words to end on. Um, so uh, let's call it a day. And uh, I, I've been informed that uh, it's been quite good. So uh, I guess quite good is better than uh, uh, fairly decent, uh, so so we'll take that. And um, I have one question, Jeff. I saw that uh, <clears throat> people were making look like very interesting comments. Uh, is there some way to like read those after we're done? I I, I wanted to. Um, is there? Uh, Maybe this is an elementary uh, computer question, but yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I think but, if you go go to the chat, uh -huh. the button that says chat, uh -huh. and then uh, right bottom corner, there's a little box with three dots. And okay. there you, oh, you can save chat. Oh, okay. Uh, I think that goes to your Zoom. I don't know where it goes, but. Oh, okay. It does. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks. All right, thank you, Jeff. Uh, thanks uh, to Jeff Bilbro for uh, setting this all up. And thank you, all of you, for attending. And especially uh, thank you to Bill and yeah. Patrick and Kate. Yeah. Thank you. And I hope we can do this in person soon. Yeah. Let's yeah, yeah. Good to see everybody. Yeah. Yeah, good to see you. See you all. Bye. Bye. Freedom, where do you go when the snow falls?